Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 40. Now, the last sermon we covered was titled, When Tragedy Strikes. Uh, this sermon is titled, Who You Going to Trust? Obviously, we want to trust the Lord. Uh, chapter 39, you know, we go through every book, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We cover all of God's Word, not just our favorite parts. So when we look at the prophet Isaiah, in chapter 39, he left us off with a prophecy of inve- eventually Babylonian invasion. Some of you might be here this morning saying, I'm a little rusty on Babylonian history. Don't worry about it because really there's a greater message behind the history. So we go back uh, seven centuries B.C. uh, with the Assyrians. The Jewish people in Jerusalem were finally delivered from these bloodthirsty, horrible people. And they're free for a while. But the prophet Isaiah prophesies a future Uh, in 586 B.C., where the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar, unfortunately, are going to eventually get into Jerusalem and take the people captives and pretty much expatriate them all the way to Babylon. And they're going to find themselves just in a rough situation. They're captive, different language, different culture. uh, Everything's different to them. And they're thinking to themselves, well, gee, how are we going to get back home? Will I ever see my home again? We're talking over a thousand miles journey uh, against their will. So God has the wisdom, and he tells his prophet in advance that to encourage them even before it happens. So Isaiah eventually passes away, but his words continue to live on. Now, what does this mean for us? Well, part of the encouragement here is that God's going to reveal his character. He's going to talk about himself. He's going to talk about who he is, what he does, his love for us. And the, same, the Bible tells us that God is immutable which means he can't change, which means he's perfect. We change, hopefully for the better and not for the worst, because we learn better information. God doesn't change because he knows the end from the beginning. So when we look at the uh, comfort and we look at the character and the nature of the true God, we can also look at that and take comfort because we understand his goodness, his truth, and his love. And we're going to look at this in seven parts. So we're going to jump in in verse 1. It says, comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity or her sin is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. So one out of seven is the comfort that only God can provide. And we can get comfort from people, relationships, comfort foods, Who doesn't love comfort foods? But there's only a certain type of comfort that only God can provide. And he says this three times. And they're going to need this comfort, especially when they find themselves in this predicament in Babylon. He says in verse 2, your warfare has ended. Listen, the military at this point, you know, further than 586 B.C., there is no military. Uh, They've been conquered. They've been expatriated. So the warfare has ended in that, how are we going to get back home? It's not going to be by the military. God is actually going to raise up the Persians, right, under Cyrus the Great, to find favor on the Jews. And when the Persians take over from the Babylonians, they actually send them back 
to their homeland, which is a great thing with money and supplies. And it's an incredible thing. They get to rebuild their temple, the walls of Jerusalem. And if you're a history major, you understand this. You've heard this. You've seen this. So they really have to rely on God for this desperate situation to get back home. And only God could do this miracle because they couldn't have done it on their own. He says that their iniquity or their sin was pardoned. It was pardoned, right? The people saw the wickedness of what they were doing. They were sorry for what they did. They repented, and God forgave them, right? God brought deliverance to them. God brought forgiveness to them. God brought comfort uh, to them. So the word double, actually, when he says to receive double for their sins, in the Hebrew can mean equivalent. So there was a just punishment for the evil that they had done, but there was even more grace. Well, there was customs back then, which are kind of interesting, because when we look at the prophetic books, especially uh, the Hebrew customs, if you were destitute and you couldn't pay a debt, what would happen was you would put a note on your door, and it said, we're desperate, we're losing our home, all this kind of stuff. And a benefactor could actually come up to the home And what he would do is he would take the note off, he would double it over and sign his name saying that he was going to pay that debt and put it back on the door. So you can see some of the uh, colloquialisms, you can see some of the customs come alive in these words. And isn't that what Jesus did for us on the cross? Right? He paid a debt of our sin that we couldn't pay our own. You know, he's that benefactor. So even though there was a, a punishment situation, the, the pardoning and the, uh, the, the blessings that came out of that were much more powerful than anything they had experienced. Continuing on in verse 3, he says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted Every mountain and hill shall be made low. The crooked places will be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So two out of seven is sort of like, you know, he's not saying to get your earth moving equipment, your caterpillars, your dump trucks and build some really straight roads for, for God. He's speaking in a matter of their hearts. God was going to do a great work, but the people need to, needed to be open to the works of God. And even today, we see those. And listen, I was in a religion and a denomination when I was younger, and I had a lifestyle, and people would tell me about God, and I found it incredibly interesting. But I never fully opened my heart. Actually, this happened a few, few times until I turned right around 26 years old and came to a church like this, heard the word, and went up and finally received Jesus as my Lord and Savior. But there's like a hardening of the heart. And even people who are in a religion sometimes can harden their heart to not give God any more than these rites and rituals on Sunday. You know, God wants a relationship with us every day. Right? Amen? Now, two is preparing the road of your heart to receive God. So let me ask you a question. Does anybody see this, right? Prepare the way. And does anybody find that familiar? The, it, well, I'm glad. I was going to ask, somebody said it. I was going to ask you to call out John the Baptist. You beat me to the punch. <laughs> so go a few centuries later from this point, And in the first century, John the Baptist comes with this powerful ministry. He says something similar, different context, but similar application. And let's read that 
if we would go to Matthew 3, 1 through 6. This is important because in every church, when this is read, he's also, you know, Jesus in Revelation spoke to people inside of churches. Not everybody in the building of a church has a relationship with Christ. So he says this before Jesus' ministry is, is, is publicly present. He says, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent or change, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it's near. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, quote, Now he goes back, John references back to Isaiah. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. He was a real outdoorsman, this John the Baptist. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. Prepare for Jesus. At the time that we're speaking of in the Babylonian Empire when they were supreme, the Jewish people needed to prepare their hearts because God was going to do a great work. Open up your hearts. You know, don't be so hard-hearted. I got to be honest with you, and I talk to other pastors, New Jersey is tough ground. You know, some of you are laughing. You can go to other states and people seem to be more receptive. Here, people are guarded. They're, you know, they're suspicious. And I understand that it's a rough area. But there has to be a point in time where we open our hearts to the things of God. God's not going to hurt us. He's not going to flat leave us. He's not going to do the things that people do. So we need to open our hearts to the living God. We're not asking you to come to the church or a denomination. We're asking you to come to Jesus Christ. Prepare the way of your heart. Verse 5, it says, The glory of the Lord will be revealed to, pre- to what? To prepared hearts. Now, in the Old Testament, this was a tangible, tangible, physical deliverance. In the New Testament, Jesus delivered us from our sins. It was not something you could see easily. It was, it was, be, it was behind the scenes. The spiritual realm, angels and demons and all that stuff, and heaven, it's, it's all around us. We just can't see it. It's a, a different dimension. So, I'll just read to you one scripture in 1 John 1. 1. This is the Apostle John who also speaks about the tangible God. Remember, this apostle saw Jesus, right? And he was with Jesus. Jesus is crucified. Then he's resurrected. Then he ascends 40 days later into heaven. This is John. This is amazing. Somebody who walked with Jesus, ate with Jesus. He's reflecting. He says this, quote, That which was from the beginning, which is God from eternity, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. I can almost picture John saying, I hugged him. This was God. You know, I I broke bread with him. He comforted me with his hands. So it's very exciting. And I'm looking forward to what God is going to do in the future when he restores all things. This isn't it. Some people live for this life like this is eternity. This isn't it. This isn't going to last forever. There's something much better coming down the road. But we have to open our hearts to receive it. Verse 6, we continue. The voice said, cry out. And he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. 
The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. So there's this contrast, uh, three out of seven, and God has a message for the people. What's the message? People are frail. Life is but a vapor. People come and people go. Sometimes the only thing you know about them is the wing of a hospital or a, a street sign somewhere. And you say, well, who was that person? We've got to go on the, uh, you know, the internet or the, or the um, dictionary or encyclopedia to find out who this person was. But people are frail. Like, and this is a great metaphor because you can see... Now, listen, I'm a grass lover. Lawn, that is. <laughs> so <laughs> sometimes you've got you to say these things. <laughs> But in, the, but in the springtime, you know, I fertilize my lawn, lawn and I water it and stuff. And it's so hardy, it's so green, it's so beautiful. When July and August comes and the drought comes, it's yellow. There's bald spots in it, I know, grubs and all kinds of things. But, but it's true what God says. Grass is subject to its environment. So in the Old Testament, especially in the prophetic books, you see that there's always going to be these metaphors that help the people to understand things better, right? But a few months, the grass changes. Now, in context, he was speaking about his ability, again, the Israelites captive in Babylon. God was speaking about his ability, trust me, people are like, like grass. Empires come and go, dynasties come and go, fearsome armies come and go. But you're going to see, I'm going to deliver you. All flesh is as grass. I'm God. I can handle this. He's basically saying to the people. In 303 AD, even the Roman emperor Diocletian, and these emperors wanted to be worshipped as gods if you follow Roman history, he commanded that every piece of scripture, every book be burned. And a lot of books were burned, but a lot of them were preserved. Same thing with the communists and even some nations today where Bibles are illegal. They burn them. But you can't stop the word of God. As a matter of fact, today, it's a branch of apologetics, uh, we have roughly 25,000 whole and partial manuscripts of the Bible, the New Testament, just the New Testament, 25,000, in Coptic, Aramaic, Latin, Greek, um, all these different languages, still preserved today. Pretty, pretty amazing. So no matter who comes and goes, people come and go, God's word stands forever. As a matter of fact, archaeology is a great ally of God's Word. Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, pretty much a new discovery some 70 years ago, were, were brought on tour and put uh, in Manhattan, and you could actually go see it. However, there was a lot of armed guards there protecting it because it was, there were such rare finds in, in, a, in a place that it, almost, it was come upon by accident. I can almost see God kind of chuckling and going, they don't want to believe in me, but they treat my word like it's priceless. So it is true. The word of God stands forever. I love that. So what does this tell us? If people are like grass and God's word stands forever, it tells us to get our eyes off of people. Now to the Israelites, they were being bullied. They were being dominated. Get your eyes off of them. They're not going to last. Those people that gave you a hard time. Um, for us today, even, you know, we can look at somebody and, and put a lot of our faith and trust in people and in organizations. And I think God would say today to us, get your eyes off of people. I think that's really the message there. You know, look at him. 
verse 9. He says, O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain, O Jerusalem. You who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule with for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm, and carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those who are with young. So you see God has these, we're, we're looking at God's characteristics. He's very strong, he's very mighty, but he's also very gentle. You saw this with Jesus. He did uh, miracles, he could stop natural events, cataclysms from taking, uh, to, from taking hold, but when he came to the disabled or the elderly or the, the poor, he was very gentle with them. And God is able to have many of those characteristics at the same time. So we see this for God's character. Judah, or the region, the southern region where uh, it, Jerusalem was encompassed in, behold your God. Yes, you're in Babylon. Yes, things are tough. But pay attention because something amazing is going to happen. And when it happens, shout it from the, the, the mountaintops and, and shout it with a strong voice. And in, in the New Testament, sometimes I think in Western Christianity, we take Jesus for granted. Because this is an amazing message too, that Christ died for our sins. So many people, even in, in religions, are, are, they feel hopeless. They feel lost. You know, some religions, and I talk to a lot of people, there's so many rules and regulations and they just quit. They can't follow it all. You need like a, a lawyer to go through all the legalese. But God's message of salvation is very simple. If you know nothing else, know that Christ came, fully God, fully man. He died for your sins. He rose again in fulfillment of the Scriptures and His promises. And if you believe in Him, He says in the Scripture that you've immediately passed from death unto life. You don't necessarily feel it, but when you pass away, you'll be right into his presence because that's what Christ promised us. That should be shouted from the housetops. It's part of the reason I do what I do. Verse 10, it said, God's reward is with him, is with him. This is common sense. You know, if you have a relationship, parents, uh, spouse, brothers and sisters, professional associates, with your relationship comes certain benefits. And God says the same thing. For God's reward is with him. And a lot of these blessings that we experience today, it's because we trust in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Jesus promises us these things when we believe in Him and when we trust in Him. Back then, today, and people do that. They say, oh, the Old Testament was different. It's really not. You can see God's character throughout both the Old and the New Testament. You can see these parallels that I'm making this morning. Right? Pretty fascinating. Verse 11, very powerful. God is seen as a shepherd. So in the Old Testament, a lot of you have memorized the, uh, the Psalm of the Good Shepherd, Psalm 23. It speaks about God, even before Jesus came, as a shepherd. Like a shepherd takes care of his flock. In John 10, in the New Testament, Jesus is portrayed as the Good Shepherd. Again, fully God, fully man. Right? So Jesus is, is portrayed as a Good Shepherd as well, and it's pretty neat. In Matthew 9, 36-38, and this is how he views the lost, especially the downtrodden. Matthew 9, verse 36. It says, But when he, Jesus, saw the multitudes. You could often see Jesus in the Scripture sitting on the top of a mountain, 
going to a secluded place, usually with an elevation point, just pondering, praying, looking, observing. And I just love it. I, some really neat movies were made and disciples would come to him and they just were clueless to, about what he was doing. But it, it says that he saw the multitudes. He was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. And this has to be a clergy person's heart. If you want to be a pastor or whatever, you have to have the heart of a shepherd. You know, some of these ministries that are like Ponzi schemes uh, and they just manipulate people into giving them money and don't buy your cancer medication, send it to us and you'll get better. If you, and it, you know, it's, it's a scam. Uh, some, some look at the multitudes and think, how much money can I get from them? Jesus looked at the multitudes and said, how can I minister to them? He always had that heart of a shepherd. And if you're new to the Scripture, this is an awesome thing for you this morning because you're getting really a picture of God's character. There's a lot of ignorance in our society today about God and who He is and what's the Bible and who wrote it and all this kind of nonsense. But when you start to dig into it and then you go back into where do the manuscripts come from, that we know that they're reliable, that they agree with each other, then you really start to get a good picture of who this God is that you may not know. You may be a prodigal. You may be somebody who needs to give your heart to the Lord, but you never knew Him before, like a long-lost relative. And God gave us free will. We can walk away all we want, but His arms are always open wide to receive us back to Him. So if you look at Babylon, right? Let's, let's talk about context. God was going to deliver His people from that kingdom. But today, our blessing is Christ's defeat of sin and Satan and the need to shout it and to tell people about it because it really is good news. It's really good news. Verse 12. It says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with a span, calculated the dust of the earth in a measure, weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has taught him? With whom did he take counsel and who instructed him and taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations, the ones that you guys are afraid of, are as a drop in a bucket and are counted as the small dust on the balance. Look, he lifts up the isles as a very little thing and Lebanon is not sufficient to burn nor to be sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. So five out of seven is why we can put our trust in God. Now these, especially verse 12, are considered an anthropomorphic metaphor. It's a big, long phrase, but what it means is giving something or someone human characteristics that's not human. God is not human. But even the simplest of mind can read this and understand it, and that's why it's done. It's not like God is this big giant and he has the oceans in one hand and the mountains in the other. But it really gets you to think these are rhetorical questions. And rhetorical questions are not designed necessarily for an answer, but they're designed to get us to think. The old, actually, rabbinical teaching was to ask a lot of questions. 
my son would have made a good rabbi because he let, asked me questions all the time. But uh, So when we go through this, we look at God is in a class all by himself. Whether it's measuring the oceans or the mountains or the heavens or the grains of dust or the gallons of water or the hairs on your head and, or the follicles in the skin on your head, uh, only God knows. And I don't know, will there be a time when we get to heaven to ask him questions like, so Lord, how many grains of sand were on the seashore? And he comes back with a number like, well, 6.25 times 10 to the 50 superscript. I don't know. I don't know what the answer is, but he knows. And honestly, scientists could never figure this out. To go through the whole world and every beach and every... It's, nobody even tries to calculate this because it's ridiculous. However, God made everything just so, just perfect, and he has that number in his head because he created all this. And it just kind of gets you to step back and go, whoa, this is God. Yeah, mankind can't help me with this. Science can't help me with this. But God's the only one who has the answer to these questions, and I love that. I love that. Again, who taught God? Who gave him wisdom? Romans 11.34 says, Who has known the mind of the Lord? Going back to the contextual situation, verses 15 through 17, to his people at the time, the believers, the nations are a drop in the bucket. That's how I look at them. The mighty armies, the mighty empires are no match for God. Now, in the earth's future, there will be a battle of Armageddon, and that's going to be, the Lord's going to make light work of those rebellious armies who are going to come against Jerusalem, who are going to come against him, and you can read that in Revelation. Verse 16, again, all the trees of Lebanon, and Lebanon today is known for its trees, its beautiful trees, but back then even more. It was more dense. Unfortunately, a lot of invading armies over the years went through Lebanon and cut a lot of trees down and sent it back to their home, you know, Babylon or Assyria, to build things with. So they did a lot of deforestation. But Lebanon still has, I just can't imagine when he was saying this, how many trees were in Lebanon. And he was basically saying you could have all the trees of the earth burned and have a burnt offering, not that he would want anybody to do that, but... It's not going to do a dent in pleasing God. It's not going to do a dent in making atonement for our sins. But there's one thing that can. You look at big, tree, you know, trees, the beasts. Okay, God's like, no, not impressed. However, in Isaiah 53:10a, it says, It pleased the Lord to crush him, meaning Christ, while he was on the earth. He has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. What does that mean? It means that Jesus didn't draw the short straw in heaven. Oh, you've got to go down and die for sins of mankind. This is something he willingly did. Christ willingly gave his life for humanity. And what Isaiah 53 is saying, you want to please God, the only way to please him and to atone for our sins is going through Christ and what he did on the cross. You can see all the scriptures come together and they all agree with each other. Whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, there's harmony in the scripture. And it's beautiful. So in context, they were going through some terrible things. But this morning, you might be going through some difficult things. You know, one thing God has not given us the ability is to look behind the skin and the, the frontal bones and, and see what's going on in, the, in your mind. What are you thinking of? What are you dealing with? What current situation is grieving you? What's keeping you up at night? You know, you're still God's people. And he loves you. So let's not just look at this as something, again, it was written contextually some 2,700 years ago, but the truths espoused in here carry through to his people today. 
He loved them. He loves us. God has the ability to love all people. Right? So be encouraged with that. Verse 18. He says, To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to Him? Well, the workman molds a graven image, a little idol. The goldsmith overspreads it with gold. And the silversmith casts silver chains. This is how they made the false religions back then. They made their little idols and then they worshipped them. Or if you had money, you made a big idol and you put it in your temple and you worshipped that to represent the god of the sea or the god of the harvest or whatever. (laughs) Verse 20, Whoever is too impoverished for such a contribution, even the poor man can be an idolater. What he does is he chooses a tree that won't rot. It's cheaper than precious metals. He seeks for himself a skillful workman to prepare a carved image that will not totter. Wow. (laughs) Six out of seven is God is greater than the idols. Again, back then they would use, some some people are very, very talented with uh, sculpturing and I don't know how they do stuff with stone. I wouldn't have the patience for that. But unfortunately, the negative end of that is how people make their own gods. (laughs) That's weird. You know, you made this God out of stone or wood or metal, and then you worship it, but you made it. So how is that God over you? And God is saying, he, he's speaking about who he is and his nature versus the foolish thing that people do. You know, and how they even make some religions today, the, the idolatry that's made. I'll just tell you that the second commandment, Ten Commandments, says do not, God says very specifically to those who follow him, do not make an image in the likeness of heaven, God, or angels, or on earth, people, or wherever, and then fashion it and bow down to worship it. But people still do that. Sometimes it's easier to give God a Sunday morning than it is to give Him your heart all week. And people do that. They bow down the statues of Jesus, the saints, kiss them, uh, do obeisance to paintings and sculptures. That's, That's... Right there in the second commandment, he says, don't do that. God wants our heart. And that's, I have to say, that's, that's a, it's a getting used to because we're so busy in this area that people are like, oh, another relationship? But you, this is God we're talking about. Do I have time for a relationship with God? But this is God we're talking about. I mean, we all want to go to heaven, don't we? <laughs> Let's look at this logically. This is God we're talking about. So six, God is greater than idols. He's greater than religion. Uh, there is no substitute for the living God. Some people make idols of their heart. Some people make idols of things that actually are not bad things. They're innocuous. They're actually good things. But they put so much time, energy, and money into it, and God is completely ignored. You know, we can make idols out of our children. Um, We can show our kids as we raise them that they're number one and they're our God. So then when they leave the house and you wonder why they have no relationship with God, maybe they saw in us that we didn't take God seriously. Kids are good hypocrisy meters. I live with an 18-year-old hypocrisy meter. So uh, they'll pick it out. You do something that's not right, they'll pick that out in you. Uh, But we need to show our kids, or we need to put things in priority. God has to be first. He's not going to be second place. Uh, Very important. Verse 21, we continue. He says, 
Have you not known? Have you not heard? And this is almost, I mean, Jesus would ask questions like this when he was on the earth. You know, you guys are believers. You are from the descendant of Abraham. How how do you not know? God is saying to them through Isaiah, have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle or the sphere of the earth. I'm going to get to that one. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretch out the heavens like a curtain. Who are, excuse me, who, meaning back to him, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Scarcely they shall be planted. Scarcely shall they be sown. Scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth. When he will also blow on them and they will wither. And the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One. You know, God gave us a brain and there's times that he reasons with us, right? He wants us to think about things, which is great. He gave us a big brain, a, a trillion synapses in there, and um, it's just amazing how much stuff goes on in that you know, few-pound organ in our body. It's incredibly powerful. <laughs> he wants us to use it. Lift up your eyes on high and, and see who has created these things, who brings out their host by number. He calls them all by name, by the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one is missing. Seven out of seven is nothing can compare to God. And in verse 18 and in verse 25, he says, God says, to whom will you liken me? Who are you going to compare me with? I'm your God. You know, we live in a culture today that's, that's at war in a lot of different ways. And one of them is, is the ignorance of the things of God. We're so, people are so attached to their technology and fast-paced lifestyle that a lot of people just don't know. You know, and I, I have discussions with people and I can't assume that they understand even simple foundations. And I'm not saying this to be critical. I'm just saying is that it doesn't take long for a culture to move away from God. You know, this is something that we have to practice. This is something we have to live, right? So he says, who will you liken me to? What God is saying is the people were so focused on the Babylonian oppressive empire that God was saying, okay, it's me. <laughs> I'm ready. I'm going to deliver you. You got to pay attention. You know, you, you got to get back. You got to change the channel. You got to get right. And he's saying to, to himself, to God, the feared Babylonians were like grasshoppers, verse 22, and stubble that blows away in verse 24. So first he talked about grass, then he talks about grasshoppers. Um, I actually like grasshoppers, but you ever find out that you have to be, <laughs> I'm just an animal, I love animals, I love insects, a beekeeper. But grasshoppers, they're so delicate. Like you could inadvertently harm them and hurt them because they're so fragile. I mean, they, they bing, bing. but you know, you got to be careful when you're hanging out with grasshoppers. So, <laughs> you know, sometimes it's good to just go outside and, and look at nature and they're like, this guy's he's off his rocker. It's God's creation. You know, I like snakes and turtles. I take pictures of them. And, you know, I live like in a rural area. I'm like, look, this is my snake. It's my turtle, my bees. So grasshoppers, and they're, they're fragile. And God was saying, you look at these guys as really scary with their swords and their helmets. And I look at them as grasshoppers, you know. It's a perspective check that God has. Now, in verse 22, we see the truth about the cosmos here. And I want to take a little bit of time on this. It's a little bit of, a, of an aside 
And some people might be taken back. Well, I thought all the people in that day believed that the earth was flat. Well, maybe if they didn't read their Bible, they believed that. But God speaks about a lot of truths of the cosmos. Uh, Psalm 19, I believe it's 6, where he speaks about the solar system on a circuit. And there was no way before the telescope and the computer that we could know this. There was no way he could speak about the laws of the quarantine, microbiology, right, contagion, before the microscope. <laughs> so you look it up in history. When were these things developed? When were they invented? When were they increased to become super uh, microscopes and telescopes. Back then, it wasn't there. So how did the Bible know these truths? Because the living God was speaking through his word. So let's do this. Um, The cosmos, or the the earth, it's God who sits above the circle of the earth. He's control over everything. Now that word circle can also be translated into sphere. Again, no spacecraft, no telescope. But God knew these truths. So a few fun facts. The earth, when I think about this, it kind of freaks me out a little bit, so bear with me. The earth uh, rotates at about 1,000 miles an hour, right? While it's rotating on its 23-degree axis, it hurtles through the universe at about 53,000 miles an hour. Does anybody feel it? Who's driving this thing? You know, what if we have a crash? You're going too fast. There's a few things that we can look at when we look at this, why God, and and believe it or not, there's people today who still believe that the earth is flat, even after all the science. It's a weird kind of thing. I've got to look into that. But the earth doesn't wobble. You don't feel vibrations. There's a few things going on here. A few things. First thing is called, in physics, it's called precession. The other is angular momentum, and the other one is axis of symmetry. And this is an incredible principle that we've actually used in the world. If you take a football and you throw it sloppily and it goes end over end, it's not going to go far. But if you put a nice spin on it, it's a spiral. And you you see some of these quarterbacks. It's amazing how far they can throw a football. It's based on those three principles in physics, right? A bullet, musket balls, they were big and heavy and they would go through the barrel, long barrels, and they they had a, a pretty hyperbolic trajectory. But when they introduced rifling into barrels and they put a spin on the bullet, now the thing can almost flatline until gravity finally pulls it down. This is the principle in how God made the earth and how it can go through the universe, it can go through the solar system without wobbling, without shaking. We don't feel it. And it's a really weird thing. We're on something extremely fast that's going fast in two directions and we don't feel it. God designed this. It didn't happen by accident. So, I mean, this is just, this is for me, it's a lot of fun. I love it. People may say, but why were people ignorant in the Middle Ages? Well, because um, there was a very controlling church at the time that did not allow people to read their Bibles in their own vernacular. So the ignorance was because they didn't read their Bibles. A lot of people didn't have access. However, in 1440, Johannes Gutenberg came up with the printing press. And then the printing presses, printing presses were mass-produced. And then when you get to the 18th century, 19th century, it's like almost like the Age of Enlightenment, but people were able to read. And the most important thing that they were, were reading is the Bible because that explained the truths of creation. It's pretty fascinating, isn't it? Do you ever think of how much went into the planet Earth to do what it does and to go where it go- goes and the seasons that we have and the 23-degree axis? 
It's pretty cool stuff, but it gets even better. He speaks about him spreading the, the heavens out like a curtain. Right? When you, back in those days, they would take their material to, or their tents, and when they would, you know, the Bedouins, when they would break ground, they would actually take this bundled up thing and they would throw it out like that and people would hold it and the thing would just expand. So what do we know about the universe? It's expanding, right? Scientists, it took them a long time to get to this point. Well, because they want to discount God, it causes more problems for them. But they do believe in a finite point and an expansion. We believe in a finite point too. And that's in Genesis 1, where God spoke it into existence. He spread it out. And, and everything that, that, that we know that's created is within that expanding universe. So a lot of these truths, when you look into the Hebrew, it says it right here. Pretty fascinating, isn't it? So Christians, we need to know our word. We need to know how to talk to people. We need to know how to... And why? Because people want to follow the truth. They don't want to just listen to us and say, well, you just have to believe. No, give them some facts. What does the Bible say? Right? Last few verses, verse 27, and we'll close. He says, Why do you say, O Jacob... And speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, he neither faints nor is weary. There's no searching of his understanding. He gives power to the weak, and to those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles, another metaphor, powerful bird, when you study the eagle and how they fly. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So Jacob, or the Israelites, did have a little bit of a poor attitude towards God. First of all, the captivity, they put themselves in captivity based on a lot of the things they did. They put themselves there. You know, a lot of people blame God for a lot of things. And I got to tell you, when I do stupid things and I find myself in a predicament, I don't blame God. I blame myself. It wasn't God that did that to me, especially when I sin. So the, the people had a, a kind of defeatist attitude. My, my just claim isn't heard by God. God forgot about me. And this isn't true. He's trying to get them motivated again. Isaiah says, uh, Lord speaks through Isaiah and says three times that God gives strength and he gives power. Contrasted with even the young men who eventually are faint and are weary. Human beings, we need to sleep. When we injure ourselves, we need to repair. God just keeps going. God doesn't sleep. Whenever you pray to him, there's no answering machine. There's no, I'm taking a nap right now. Uh, He's always there to listen to us. And he can multitask. He can hear billions of people praying to him at the same time. That's impressive. So we look at that, and it's encouraging. And what it says is that we don't have to be perfect. We don't have to be super strong. We don't have to be sinless because we're not. That's God's job description. So I'll read verse 31 again, and then we'll close. Because this is important. You know, some of you might like, oh, I'm not really into the Babylonian history, but really focus on this. But those who wait on the Lord, the Hebrew word is kovar. It means to wait on the Lord. It actually means to, to be entwined or joined with the Lord, to be kind of twisted like a braid. So a, a really close, intimate relationship with the Lord. Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. 
They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So I say this again. God is here to refresh us. He's here to invigorate us. When I was ignorant and didn't know things about God, I always thought He was mad at me. And especially some of the things I did, I probably expected Him to be mad at me. But when I learned about God and I learned about His love and I learned about His invigoration, His his desire to refresh us, then I started to put my trust in Him. And the rest is history and here I am. And it's funny because I had a guy from college come here and he moved away, but they were coming to our church and he said to me, you're the pastor? He goes, you're a Christian? I'm like, shh, we'll talk later. But, but this is what God can do. He gives you an inspiration. He, gives you, he inspires us. He invigorates us. He, he, he shows us His love and what He can do, and then He wants us to spread it to others. So I asked that question in the opening, and I asked the question when we close. Who are you going to put your trust in? People? Relationships? Your education? Money, what happens when they fail? More importantly, what are you going to put your trust of where you're going to end up at the end of your life in? Your trust in salvation, religion, denomination, good works. I have a gym membership card. I go to the gym, beep, and it scans me in. I get entrance. I can work out with anything I want. It isn't like that in heaven. Well, let me see your card. Well, that's a good denomination. No, that one's not so good. That's not not how it works. Jesus will either know us, the Bible says, or he'll say, I never knew you. Yeah, I knew who you were. I saw what you did, but we never had anything. God desires a relationship with us, and that's the blessing. Who are you going to trust? Most importantly, who are you going to trust with your salvation? Verse 16 tells us that self-effort is rejected by God. It's only by Christ that we're saved. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.